Hello, everyone, and welcome to the August 3rd edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A new WCAB panel decision ruled that the failure of a school district to warn a teacher about a dangerous student supported a serious and willful misconduct award. Here's what happened in the case of Sauceda versus Fresno Unified School District. Patrick Sauceda was injured in 2008 while working as a teacher for the Fresno Unified School District. He injured his head, left eye, and left knee following a physical attack by a student. The case was resolved by stipulations with requests for an award. He then filed a petition for increased benefits for serious and willful misconduct of the employer. He alleged that he was assaulted by a special education student previously known to the school district to be a person with propensities for causing serious injury to others and who had stated on more than one occasion that he intended to kill or cause serious injury to Mr. Sauceda. He claimed that the special education program manager refused to move the student to another emotionally disturbed program on another campus, and that the classroom had no radio or telephone for use in case of an emergency. After a trial, Mr. Sauceda was awarded serious and willful misconduct benefits, and reconsideration of this award was denied in the split panel decision. A finding of serious and willful misconduct is appropriate where the employer knew of the dangerous condition, knew that the probable consequences of that condition would involve serious injury to an employee and deliberately failed to take corrective action. Here, it is undisputed that the defendant knew of the dangerous condition. The school district admitted it knew that the student had a prior history of physically attacking two different teachers on separate occasions. And that this student had made specific threats that he intended to kill or seriously injure Mr. Sauceda. It was amply shown that the district deliberately failed to take corrective action. The administrative team at his workplace declined to take any action to remove the student assailant from his classroom. And our crime report. Marusen Milhomem pleaded no contest to six felonies related to insurance premium and payroll tax fraud. He also admitted to a white-collar crime enhancement that caused a loss of more than $500,000. Milhomem is the owner of Viking Pavers Incorporated, a construction company based out of Point Richmond, California. The Contractor State Licensing Board and the Department of Industrial Relations previously issued Viking Pavers civil citations in 2017. Back then, investigators discovered a subcontractor work crew operating for the company without a license and without workers' comp insurance during a random job site inspection. The Business and Professions Code does not permit construction companies to subcontract construction work unless the crews have their own license. 
The district attorney's office then learned of the fraud after employees of Viking Pavers were involved in a vehicle accident. These employees were never reported during premium audits as employees or subcontractors. The investigation by the Contra Costa County DA showed that Viking Pavers continued to use unlicensed subcontractors after the civil citations and throughout 2018. And the company rerouted the payments off the books to avoid detection during required audits. Forensic accountants traced payments to unlicensed and uninsured work crews, initially through a check cashing service in Richmond, California, and then through the bank accounts of a newly created shell company. A subsequent search warrant at the business resulted in the seizure of over $80,000 in cash. Bill Holman will serve 365 days in county jail and serve five years of formal probation. He was ordered to pay more than $1 million to Markel Corporation for the underpayment of workers' comp insurance premium, $800,000 to the Employment Development Department, and more than 300000 to Berkshire Hathaway for the underpayment of workers' comp insurance premium to that company. Six former NFL players have been charged in a superseding indictment for their alleged roles in a nationwide fraud on a health care benefit program for retired players. Eleven other former NFL players were previously charged in 2019 for their alleged roles in the fraud. The fraud targeted the Gene Upshaw NFL Player Health Reimbursement Account Plan. This plan provided for tax-free reimbursement of -of out-of-pocket medical care expenses that were not covered by insurance and that were incurred by former players, their wives, and their dependents. Prosecutors say over $3.9 million in false and fraudulent claims were submitted to the plan, and the plan paid out over $3.4 million on those claims. Since the initial charges were announced, seven of the defendants have entered guilty pleas. Carell Buckhalter, James Butler, Joseph Horn, Ettrick Pruitt, Cedrus Brown, John Eubanks, and Donald Reche Caldwell, who passed away in June. Each pleaded guilty to conspiracy to commit health care fraud. The superseding indictment alleges the submission of false and fraudulent claims for expensive medical equipment, typically between forty dollars and $50,000 for each claim, that was never purchased or received. The equipment included hyperbaric oxygen chambers, cryotherapy machines, ultrasound machines designed for use by a doctor's office to conduct women's health examinations, and electromagnetic therapy devices designed for use on horses. The defendants recruited other players into the scheme by offering kickbacks and bribes that ranged from a few thousand to $10,000 or more per claim submitted. As part of the scheme, the defendants allegedly fabricated supporting documentation for the claims, including invoices, prescriptions, and letters of medical necessity. 
A San Diego-based clinical laboratory, Progenity Incorporated, admitted that it submitted fraudulent bills to TRICARE, the Department of Defense Healthcare Benefit Program that covers military service members and their dependents, and to the Federal Healthcare Employee Benefits Program for clinical tests that it knew were not covered or properly payable by either program. In addition, Progenity admitted that it offered improper incentives to patients and doctors to use its laboratory services. Progenity has agreed to pay a total of $49 million in civil settlements in federal courts in the Southern District of California and the Southern District of New York, as well as to multiple states. Progenity offered non-invasive genetic testing that did not have FDA approval and was considered by TRICARE as a laboratory-developed test. In order to get reimbursed by TRICARE, Progenity falsely and fraudulently used a medical billing code that TRICARE did cover, but that Progenity knew did not accurately reflect the test. And in medical news, U.S. News announced the 2020-2021 list of the best hospitals in the country. It analyzed data from nearly 5,000 medical centers and survey responses from more than 30,000 physicians to rank hospitals in 16 adult specialties, including orthopedics. Survival rates, patient experience, specialized staff, and advanced technologies were among the factors weighed for the review. Hospital for Special Surgery, HHS, excuse me, HSS, in New York topped the annual Best Hospitals for Orthopedics rankings, which included <clears throat> 1,683 orthopedic hospitals nationwide. Mayo Clinic Rochester, Cedars-Sinai Medical Center, NYU Langone Orthopedic Hospital, and Rush University Medical Center rounded out the top five best hospitals for orthopedics. However, overall, California hospitals had a respectable showing on the orthopedic hospital list, with seven hospitals ranking in the top 30. Number three was Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. Number seven on the list was Santa Monica UCLA Medical Center and Orthopedic Hospital. Number 10, Scripps La Jolla Hospitals. Number 12, Stanford Healthcare in Stanford Hospital. 15, University of California San Francisco Medical Center. Number 26, John Muir Health in Walnut Creek. And finally, number 30, Keck Medical Center of the University of Southern California. Millions of workers have been uprooted by COVID-19 and been thrown into a new normal of working from home offices. To further complicate things, many individuals were provided with only a laptop and little, if any, help for setting up an ergonomically correct workstation at home. As a result, many home office-based workers face suboptimal working conditions as workers across the nation have converted their basements, spare rooms, dining room tables, or bedrooms into makeshift offices. An expert in office ergonomics at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine 
conducted an ergonomic assessment of employees at that University of Cincinnati. He surveyed uh, 4,500 faculty and staff after the coronavirus pandemic prompted the university to send workers home to continue operations. As part of the study, some employees sent photos of home workstations for ergonomic review. This offered a glimpse into what many who work from home are encountering. And the survey's findings were recently published in the scholarly journal Ergonomics in Design. The evaluations of the home workstations identified many issues that could be adversely affecting the workers. Many chairs were the wrong height with about 41% too low and 2% too high. 53% of workers had armrests on their chairs, but 32% did not use them. And for 18% of the workers, the armrests were improperly adjusted. Not using the armrest causes contact stress on the forearms when rested on the hard front edge of work surfaces and strain across the upper back as the arms need support. Support of the back of the chair was not used by 69% and often without any lumbar support for 73% of survey participants. That meant many individuals did not have proper support of their lower back maintaining the lumbar curvature. The position of a computer monitor was often too low or off to the side. Three quarters of monitors were laptops, which were too low relative to the worker's eye height. External monitors were also routinely set up too low in 52% of participants or too high in 4% of them. Another common issue with the monitors was the lack of the primary screens centered in front of the workers, occurring in 31% of workers and resulting in twisting of the neck and back to review the monitor. And in regulatory news, Section 111 of the Medicare, Medicaid, and SCHIP Extension Act of 2007 added mandatory reporting requirements with respect to Medicare beneficiaries who receive settlements, judgments, awards, or other payment from workers' compensation claims. Workers' compensation claim information helps CMS determine when other insurance coverage is primary to Medicare. Mandatory reporting can be accomplished by either the submission of an electronic file of workers' compensation claim information where the injured party is a Medicare beneficiary or by entry of this claim information directly into a secure web portal, depending on the volume of data to be submitted. Upon receipt of this information, CMS checks whether the injured party associated with the claim reported is a Medicare beneficiary and determines if the other insurance is primary to Medicare. And if Medicare paid first when it should not have, uses the information to seek repayment from the other insurer or the Medicare beneficiary. The agency released a new Section 111 User Guide this June, which contained a reminder regarding the $750 low dollar reporting threshold incorporated in its recent alert addressing no-fault and med pay reporting 
and provided several other technical update changes. This user guide is the primary source for Section 111 reporting requirements. CMS has released a notice announcing it will be holding a webinar for Section 111 reporting this August 13, 2020. The DEA has closed and fined a Wairika Pharmacy for multiple drug dispensing violations. KJL Consultants Incorporated, doing business as Luke's Wairika Drug, and its owner, Lucas Walsh, have agreed to pay $200,000 to resolve allegations that the pharmacy committed multiple violations of the Controlled Substances Act's strict record-keeping requirements. The pharmacy permanently ceased operations in 2018, and a key term of the settlement agreement included the pharmacy surrendered of its DEA registration for cause. The settlement relates to a DEA administrative audit and inspection of Luke's Wairika drugs in September 2016. The DEA identified more than 150 Controlled Substances Act violations, including failing to maintain the archive DEA E222 form for orders of controlled substances from a distributor to properly document the quantity and date of controlled substances received from a distributor, and to conduct a complete and accurate biennial inventory. It is critical that all pharmacies, whether they be large national chains or small local stores like Luke's, ensure that their drug transactions are properly documented, tracked, and inventoried. This helps prevent diversion of opioids and other dangerous drugs and avoids harm to the public from abuse of these powerful substances. About 4,000 federal employees have filed workers' compensation claims with the Labor Department due to COVID-19, and 60 people have filed death claims and the U.S. Department of Labor projects COVID-19 claims among federal employees may reach 6,000 in the coming weeks. The new report published this month as part of Phase 1 of the Office of Inspector General's Pandemic Oversight Response Plan presents the results of its audit of the Office of Workers' Compensation Program's initial response to the pandemic. It conducted a performance audit to answer the question, to what extent has COVID-19 affected OWCP's ability to process and adjudicate claims? And what has OWCP done to address challenges it encountered? The department's inspector general says the division that handles federal employee claims is anticipating a strain in resources due to demand and social distancing mandates. It has alternative staffing plans if COVID-19 compensation claims continue to surge. Labor says it's accepted over 1,600 federal employee claims so far, but Over 2,300 COVID claims are unadjudicated. In response, the programs are tracking delays, providing guidance, 
extending deadlines, and taking additional actions as needed. It has developed a contingency plan, issued new procedures for handling COVID-19 claims, and created a COVID-19 task force to oversee claims development and adjudication. The Division of Coal Mine Workers' Compensation is also experiencing challenges in its ability to process claims timely because a significant number of approved physicians have temporarily suspended pulmonary examinations. The examinations are required for a coal miner's claim to be processed. These delays are creating a backlog that could strain resources when physicians resume claimant examinations. The Coal Miners Division is tracking the delays and has taken steps to assist claimants, including publishing guidance on its website and extending its deadlines. The Division of Energy Employees Occupational Illness Compensation is also experiencing delays in obtaining required information from certain Department of Energy facilities and physicians who have closed or limited operations during the pandemic. The Division of Longshore and Harbor Workers' Compensation, however, has not experienced, nor is it expecting, any significant impact from the COVID-19 pandemic. With many of California's workplaces facing significant changes fueled by the COVID-19 pandemic, state lawmakers are considering whether labor laws also now need to evolve. Legislators have proposed expanding workers' compensation eligibility so that more employees will be covered if they are diagnosed with COVID-19, increasing number of sick days for food service workers, and requiring employers to pay a portion of utility and internet bills for teleworkers. Governor Gavin Newsom said that he plans to work hand-in-glove with the legislature to expand workplace protections. Assemblywoman Lorena Gonzalez and State Senator Jerry Hill both have bills to ease restrictions on workers' compensation claims so more employees have access to the benefit. And talks are underway to combine both bills in some way. One of them, SB 1159, would add coronavirus to the list of on-the-job injuries covered under the state's workers' comp program while removing a requirement that workers prove they contracted the virus on the job. Instead, employers would have to prove that COVID-19 was not contracted on the workplace. Governor Newsom included a similar measure for essential workers in a May 6 executive order. As currently written, AB 196 would go a step further by creating a presumption that essential workers who contract COVID-19 were infected while on the job with no ability for the employer to contest that finding. That's known as a conclusive presumption. Among the other workplace bills the legislature will consider in the coming weeks is AB 3216, which would make it an unlawful employment practice to refuse a request for up to 12 weeks of job-protected leave from a worker who needs to care for a child 
whose school or daycare has closed due to a state, local, or federal public health emergency. Assembly Bill 1492 would ease workplace restrictions, dictating when employees must take meal and rest breaks during the day, a proposal intended to provide more flexibility in working from home. But it would also require employers to pay for an additional hour of work if the employer requires workers to skip those breaks. The bill also would require an employer to pay for equipment needed to work from home and a portion of the workers' home internet and utility bills. Senate Bill 729 would require employers to provide an additional 80 hours of paid COVID-19 sick leave to full-time food sector workers during a declared local or state emergency. Lawmakers have until August 31 to send bills to Governor Newsom before adjoining for the year. And that is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. We also publish our daily news podcasts and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd Scarron, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news. <music>